Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 20. Beyond the Black River. Part 1 of 2. Chapter 1. The stillness of the forest trail was so primeval that the tread of a soft-booted foot was a startling disturbance. At least it seemed so to the ears of the wayfarer, though he was moving along the path with the caution that must be practiced by any man who ventures beyond Thunder River. He was a young man of medium height, with an open countenance and a mop of tousled tawny hair, unconfined by cap or helmet. His garb was common enough for that country a coarse tunic belted at the waist, short leather breeches beneath, and soft buckskin boots that came short of the knee. A knife hilt jutted from one boot top. The broad leather belt supported a short, heavy sword and a buckskin pouch. There was no perturbation in the wide eyes that scanned the green walls which fringed the trail. Though not tall, he was well built, and the arms of the short, wide sleeves of the tunic left bare were thick with corded muscle. He tramped imperturbably along, although the last settler's cabin lay miles behind him, and each step was carrying him nearer the grim peril that hung like a brooding shadow over the ancient forest. He was not making as much noise as it seemed to him, though he well knew that the faint tread of his booted feet would be like a toxin of alarm to the fierce ears that might be lurking in the treacherous green fastness. His careless attitude was not genuine, his eyes and ears were keenly alert, especially his ears, for no gaze could penetrate the leafy tangle for more than a few feet in either direction. But it was instinct, more than any warning by the external senses, which brought him up suddenly, his hand on his hilt. He stood stock still in the middle of the trail, unconsciously holding his breath, wondering what he had heard, and wondering if indeed he had heard anything. The silence seemed absolute. Not a squirrel chattered or bird chirped. Then his gaze fixed itself on a mass of bushes beside the trail a few yards ahead of him. There was no breeze, yet he had seen a branch quiver. The short hairs on his scalp prickled, and he stood for an instant undecided, certain that a move in either direction would bring death streaking at him from the bushes. A heavy chopping crunch sounded behind the leaves, the bushes were shaken violently and simultaneously with the sound. An arrow arched erratically from among them and vanished among the trees along the trail. The wayfarer glimpsed its flight as he sprang frantically to cover. Crouching behind a thick stem, his sword quivering in his fingers, he saw the bushes part and a tall figure stepped leisurely into the trail. The traveller stared in surprise. The stranger was clad like himself in regard to boots and breeks, though the latter were of silk instead of leather, but he wore a sleeveless hauberk of dark mesh mail in place of a tunic and a helmet perched on his black mane. That helmet held the other's gaze. It was without a crest, but adorned by short bull's horns. No civilized hand ever forged that headpiece, nor was the face below it that of a civilized man, dark, scarred, with smoldering blue eyes, it was a face as untamed as the primordial forest which formed its background. The man held a broad sword in his right hand, and the edge was smeared with crimson. Come on out, he called, in an accent unfamiliar to the wayfarer. All safe now. There was only one of the dogs. 
Come on out. The other emerged dubiously and stared at the stranger. He felt curiously helpless and futile as he gazed on the proportions of the forest man. The massive iron-clad breast and the arm that bore the reddened sword burned dark by the sun and ridged and corded with muscles. He moved with the dangerous ease of a panther. He was too fiercely supple to be a product of civilization, even of that fringe of civilization which composed the outer frontiers. Turning, he stepped back to the bushes and pulled them apart. Still not certain just what had happened, the wayfarer from the east advanced and stared down into the bushes. A man lay there, a short, dark, thickly muscled man, naked except for a loincloth, a necklace of human teeth, and a brass armlet. A short sword was thrust into the girdle of the loincloth, and one hand still gripped a heavy black bow. The man had long black hair. That was about all the wayfarer could tell about his head, for his features were a mask of blood and brains. His skull had been split to the teeth. A picked by the guards, exclaimed the wayfarer. The burning blue eyes turned upon him. Are you surprised? Why, they told me at Velitrium, and again at the settlers' cabins along the road, that these devils sometimes sneaked across the border, but I didn't expect to meet one this far in the interior. You're only four miles east of Black River, the stranger informed him. They've been shot within a mile of Elytrium. No settler between Thunder River and Fort Tussle and is really safe. I picked up this dog's trail three miles south of the fort this morning, and I've been following him ever since. I came up behind him, just as he was drawing an arrow on you. Another instant, and there'd have been a stranger in hell. But I spoiled his aim for him. The wayfarer was staring wide-eyed at the larger man dumbfounded by the realization that the man had actually tracked down one of the forest devils and slain him unsuspected. That implied woodsmanship of a quality undreamed, even for Konajahara. You are one of the fort's garrison, he asked. I'm no soldier. I draw the pay and rations of an officer of the line, but I do my work in the woods. Bolanus knows I'm of more use ranging along the river than cooped up in the fort. Casually, the slayer shoved the body deeper into the thickets with his foot, pulled the bushes together, and turned away down the trail. The other followed him. My name is Balthus, he offered. I was at Velitrium last night. I haven't decided whether I'll take up a hide of land or enter fort service. The best land near Thunder River is already taken, grunted the slayer. Plenty of good land between Scalp Creek. You crossed it a few miles back, and the fort... But that's getting too devilish close to the river. The picks steal over to burn and murder, as that one did. They don't always come singly. Some day they'll try to sweep the settlers out of Kona Jahara. And they may succeed, probably will succeed. This colonization business is mad anyway. There's plenty of good land east of the Bosonian marshes. If the Aquilonians would cut up some of the big estates of their barons and plant wheat where now only deer are hunted... They wouldn't have to cross the border and take the land of the Picts away from them. That's queer talk from a man in the service of the governor of Kanajahara, objected Balthus. It's nothing to me, the other retorted. I'm a mercenary. I sell my sword to the highest bidder. I never planted wheat and never will, so long as there are other harvests to be reaped with the sword. But you Hyborians have expanded as far as you'll be allowed to expand. You've crossed the marshes, burned a few villages, exterminated a few clans, and pushed back the frontier to Black River. 
but I doubt if you'll even be able to hold what you've conquered and you'll never push the frontier any further westward. Your idiotic king doesn't understand conditions here. He won't send you enough reinforcements, and there are not enough settlers to withstand the shock of a concerted attack from across the river. But the Picts are divided into small clans, persisted Balthus. They'll never unite. We can whip any single clan. Or any three or four clans, admitted the Slayer. But someday a man will rise and unite thirty or forty clans, just as was done among the Sumerians when the Gundamen tried to push the border northward years ago. They tried to colonize the southern marshes of Cimmeria, destroyed a few small clans, built a fort town, Venarium. You've heard the tale. So I have indeed, replied Balthus, wincing. The memory of that red disaster was a black blot in the chronicles of a proud and warlike people. My uncle was at Venarium when the Cimmerians swarmed over the walls. He was one of the few who escaped that slaughter. I've heard him tell the tale many a time. The barbarians swept out of the hills in a ravening horde, without warning, and stormed Venarium with such fury, none could stand before them. Men, women, and children were butchered. Venarium was reduced to a mass of charred ruins, as it is to this day. The Aquilonians were driven back across the marches, and have never since tried to colonize the Cimmerian country. But you speak of Venarium familiarly. Perhaps you were there. I was, grunted the other. I was one of the horde that swarmed over the walls. I hadn't yet seen fifteen snows, but already my name was repeated about the council fires. Balthus involuntarily recoiled, staring. It seemed incredible that the man walking tranquilly at his side should have been one of those screeching blood-mad devils that poured over the walls of Venarium on that long-gone day to make her streets run crimson. Then you too are a barbarian, he exclaimed involuntarily. The other nodded without taking offense. I am Conan, a Cimmerian. I've heard of you. Fresh interest quickened Balthus's gaze. No wonder the Pict had fallen victim to his own sort of subtlety. The Cimmerians were barbarians as ferocious as the Picts, and much more intelligent. Evidently Conan had spent much time among civilized men, though that contact had obviously not softened him, nor weakened any of his primitive instincts. Balthus's apprehension turned to admiration as he marked the easy, cat-like stride, the effortless silence with which the Cimmerian moved along the trail. The oiled links of his armor did not clink, and Balthus knew Conan could glide through the deepest thicket or most tangled copse as noiselessly as any naked Pict that ever lived. You're not a Gunderman. It was more assertion than question. Balthus shook his head. I'm from the Toron. I've seen good woodsmen from the Taran, but the Bassonians have sheltered you Aquilonians from the outer wilderness for too many centuries. You need hardening. That was true. The Bassonian marshes, with their fortified villages filled with determined bowmen, had long served Aquilonia as a buffer against the outlying barbarians. Now among the settlers beyond Thunder River here was growing up a breed of forest men capable of meeting the barbarians at their own game, but their numbers were still scanty. Most of the frontiersmen were like Balthus, more of the settler than the woodsman type. The sun had not set, but it was no longer in sight, hidden as it was behind the dense forest wall. The shadows were lengthening, deepening back in the woods as the companions strode on down the trail. It will be dark before we reach the fort, 
commented Conan casually. Then, listen. He stopped short, half-crouching, sword ready, transformed into a savage figure of suspicion and menace, poised to spring and rend. Balthus had heard it too, a wild scream that broke at its highest note. It was the cry of a man in dire fear or agony. Conan was off in an instant, racing down the trail, each stride widening the distance between him and his straining companion. Balthus puffed a curse. Among the settlements of the Turan he was accounted a good runner, but Conan was leaving him behind with maddening ease. Then Balthus forgot his exasperation, as his ears were outraged by the most frightful cry he had ever heard. It was not human, this one. It was a demoniacal caterwauling of hideous triumph that seemed to exult over fallen humanity and find echo in black gulfs beyond human ken. Balthus faltered in his stride and clammy sweat beaded his flesh. But Conan did not hesitate. He darted around a bend in the trail and disappeared, and Balthus, panicky at finding himself alone with that awful scream still shuddering through the forest in grisly echoes, put on an extra burst of speed and plunged after him. The Aquilonian slid to a stumbling halt, almost colliding with the Cimmerian, who stood in the trail over a crumpled body. But Conan was not looking at the corpse, which lay there in the crimson-soaked dust. He was glaring into the deep woods on either side of the trail. Balthus muttered a horrified oath. It was the body of a man which lay there in the trail, a short, fat man clad in the gilt-worked boots and, despite the heat, the ermine-trimmed tunic of a wealthy merchant. His fat, pale face was set in a stare of frozen horror. His thick throat had been slashed from ear to ear as if by a razor-sharp blade. A short sword still in its scabbard seemed to indicate that he had been struck down without a chance to fight for his life. A pick, Balthus whispered, as he turned peer into the deepening shadows of the forest. Conan shook his head and straightened to scowl down at the dead man. A forest devil. This is the fifth, by Krom. What do you mean? Did you ever hear of a Pictish wizard called Zoga Sag? Balthus shook his head uneasily. He dwells in Guawila, the nearest village across the river. Three months ago he hid beside this road and stole a string of pack mules from a pack train bound for the fort, drugged their drivers somehow. The mules belong to this man. Conan casually indicated the corpse with his foot. Tiberias, a merchant of Valitrium, they were loaded with ale kegs and old Zoga stopped to guzzle before he got across the river. A woodsman named Seractus trailed him, and led Valanus and three soldiers to where he lay dead drunk in a thicket. At the importunities of Tiberias, Valanus threw Zoga Sag into a cell, which is the worst insult you can give a Pict. He managed to kill his guard and escape, and sent back word that he meant to kill Tiberias and the five men who captured him in a way that would make Aquilonians shudder for centuries to come. Well, Seractus and the soldiers are dead. Seractus was killed on the river, the soldiers in the very shadow of the fort, and now Tiberius is dead. No Pict killed any of them. Each victim, except Tiberius, as you see, lacked his head, which no doubt is now ornamenting the altar of Zogasag's particular god. How do you know they weren't killed by the Picts? demanded Balthus. Conan pointed to the corpse of the merchant. You think that was done with a knife or a sword? Look closer and you'll see that only a talon could have made a gash like that. The flesh is ripped, not cut. Perhaps a panther, 
began Balthus without conviction. Conan shook his head impatiently. A man from the Turan couldn't mistake the mark of a panther's claws. No, it's a forest devil summoned by Zogasag to carry out his revenge. Tiberius was a fool to start for Velitrium alone, and so close to dusk. But each one of the victims seemed to be smitten with madness just before doom overtook him. Look here, the signs are plain enough. Tiberius came riding along the trail on his mule, maybe with a bundle of choice otter pelt behind his saddle to sell in Velitrium, and the thing sprang on him from behind that bush. See where the branches are crushed down. Tiberius gave one scream, and then his throat was torn open, and he was selling his otter skins in hell. The mule ran away into the woods. Listen, even now you can hear him thrashing about under the trees. The demon didn't have time to take Tiberius' head. It took fright as we came up. As you came up, amended Balthus, it must not be a very terrible creature if it flees from one-armed man. But how do you know it was not a Pict with some kind of a hook that rips instead of slicing? Did you see it? Tiberius was an armed man, grunted Conan. If Zogarsag can bring demons to aid him, he can tell them which men to kill and which to let alone. No, I didn't see it. I only saw the bushes shake as it left the trail. But if you want further proof, look here. The slayer had stepped into the pool of blood in which the dead man sprawled. Under the bushes at the edge of the path, there was a footprint, made in blood on the hard loam. Did a man make that? demanded Conan. Balthus felt his scalp prickle. Neither man nor any beast that he had ever seen could have left that strange, monstrous three-toed print that was curiously combined of the bird and the reptile, yet a true type of neither. He spread his fingers above the print, careful not to touch it, and grunted explosively. He could not span the mark. What is it? he whispered. I never saw a beast that left a spore like that. Nor any other sane man, answered Conan grimly. It's a swamp demon. They're thick as bats in the swamps beyond Black River. You can hear them howling like damned souls when the wind blows strong from the south on hot nights. What shall we do? asked the Aquilonian, peering uneasily into the deep blue shadows. The frozen fear on the dead countenance haunted him. He wondered what hideous head the wretch had seen thrust grinning from among the leaves to chill his blood with terror. No use to try to follow a demon, grunted Conan, drawing a short woodman's axe from his girdle. I tried tracking him after he killed Seractus. I lost his trail within a dozen steps. He might have grown himself wings and flown away or sunk down through the earth to hell. I don't know. I'm not going after the mule either. It'll either wander back to the fort or to some settler's cabin. As he spoke, Conan was busy at the edge of the trail with his axe. With a few strokes, he cut a pair of saplings nine or ten feet long and denuded them of their branches. Then he cut a length from a serpent-like vine that crawled among the bushes nearby and making one end fast to one of the poles. A couple of feet from the end, whipped the vine over the other sapling and interlaced it back and forth. In a few moments he had a crude but strong litter. The demon isn't going to get Tiberius' head if I can help it, he growled. We'll carry the body into the fort. It isn't more than three miles. I never liked the fat fool, but we can't have Pictish devils making so cursed free with white men's heads. The Picts were a white race, though swarthy, but the border men never spoke of them as such. 
Balthus took the rear end of the litter, onto which Conan unceremoniously dumped the unfortunate merchant, and they moved on down the trail as swiftly as possible. Conan made no more noise laden with their grim burden than he had made when unencumbered. He had made a loop with the merchant's belt at the end of the poles, and was carrying his share of the load with one hand, while the other gripped his naked broadsword, and his restless gaze roved the sinister walls about them. The shadows were thickening. A darkening blue mist blurred the outlines of the foliage. The forest deepened in the twilight, became a blue haunt of mystery, sheltering unguessed things. They had covered more than a mile, and the muscles in Balthus's sturdy arms were beginning to ache a little when a cry rang shuddering from the woods, whose blue shadows were deepening into purple. Conan started convulsively, and Balthus almost let go the poles. A woman! cried the younger man. Great Mitra! a woman cried out then. A settler's wife straying in the woods, snarled Conan, setting down his end of the litter. Looking for a cow, probably, and stay here! He dived like a hunting wolf into the leafy wall. Balthus' hair bristled. Stay here alone with this corpse and a devil hiding in the woods, he yelped. I'm coming with you! and suiting action to words, he plunged after the Sumerian. Conan glanced back at him, but made no objection, though he did not moderate his pace to accommodate the shorter legs of his companion. Balthus wasted his wind in swearing as the Sumerian drew away from him again, like a phantom between the trees, and then Conan burst into a dim glade and halted crouching, lips snarling, sword lifted. What are we stopping for? panted Balthus, dashing the sweat out of his eyes and gripping his short sword. That scream came from this glade, or nearby, answered Conan. I don't mistake the location of sounds, even in the woods, but where? Abruptly, the sound rang out again, behind them, in the direction of the trail they had just quitted. It rose piercingly and pitifully, the cry of a woman in frantic terror, and then, shockingly, it changed to a yell of mocking laughter that might have burst from the lips of a fiend of lower hell. What in Mitra's name? Balthus' face was a pale blur in the gloom. With a scorching oath, Conan wheeled and dashed back the way he had come, and the Aquilonian stumbled bewilderedly after him. He blundered into the Cimmerian as the latter stopped dead and rebounded from his brawny shoulders as though from an iron statue. Gasping from the impact, he heard Conan's breath hiss through his teeth. The Cimmerian seemed frozen in his tracks. Looking over his shoulder, Balthus felt his hair stand up stiffly. Something was moving through the deep bushes that fringed the trail, something that neither walked nor flew, but seemed to glide like a serpent. But it was not a serpent. Its outlines were indistinct, but it was taller than a man, and not very bulky. It gave off a glimmer of weird light, like a faint blue flame. Indeed, the eerie fire was the only tangible thing about it. It might have been an embodied flame moving with reason and purpose through the blackening woods. Conan snarled a savage curse and hurled his axe with ferocious will. But the thing glided on without altering its course. Indeed, it was only a few instants' fleeting glimpse they had of it, a tall, shadowy thing of misty flame floating through the thickets. Then it was gone, and the forest crouched in breathless stillness. With a snarl, Conan plunged through the intervening foliage and into the trail. His profanity, as Balthus floundered after him, was lurid and impassioned. The Cimmerian was standing over the litter on which lay the body of Tiberius. 
and that body no longer possessed a head. Tricked us with its damnable caterwauling, raved Conan, swinging his greatsword about his head in his wrath. I might have known. I might have guessed a trick. Now there'll be five heads to decorate Zogar's altar. But what thing is it that can cry like a woman and laugh like a devil and shines like witch-fire as it glides through the trees? gasped Balthus, mopping the sweat from his pale face. A swamp devil, responded Conan morosely. Grab those poles. We'll take in the body anyway. At least our load's a bit lighter. With which grim philosophy he gripped the leathery loop and stalked down the trail. Chapter 2 Fort Tusculan stood on the eastern bank of Black River, the tides of which washed the foot of the stockade. The latter was of logs, as were all the buildings within, including the donjon, to dignify it by that appellation, in which were the governor's quarters, overlooking the stockade and the sullen river. Beyond that river lay a huge forest, which approached jungle-like density along the spongy shores. Men paced the runways along the log parapet day and night, watching that dense green wall. Seldom a menacing figure appeared, but the sentries knew that they too were watched, fiercely, hungrily, with the mercilessness of ancient hate. The forest beyond the river might seem desolate and vacant of life to the ignorant eye, but life teemed there, not alone of bird and beast and reptile, but also of men, the fiercest of all the hunting beasts. There, at the fort, civilization ended. Fort Tusculum was the last outpost of a civilized world. It represented the westernmost thrust of the dominant Hyborian races. Beyond the river, the primitive still reigned in shadowy forests, brush-thatched huts where hung the grinning skulls of men, and mud-walled enclosures where fires flickered and drums rumbled, and spears were wetted in the hands of dark, silent men, with tangled black hair and the eyes of serpents. Those eyes often glared through bushes at the fort across the river. Once dark-skinned men had built their huts where that fort stood, yes, and their huts had risen where now stood the fields and log cabins of fair-haired settlers. Back beyond Velitrium, that raw, turbulent frontier town on the banks of Thunder River, to the shores of that other river that bounds the Bosonian marshes. Traders had come, and priests of Mitra who walked with bare feet and empty hands, and died horribly, most of them, but soldiers had followed, men with axes in their hands and women and children in ox-drawn wains. Back to Thunder River, and still back, beyond Black River, the Aborigines had been pushed with slaughter and massacre, but the dark-skinned people did not forget that once Konajohara had been theirs. The guard inside the eastern gate bawled a challenge. Through a barred aperture torchlight flickered, glinting on a steel headpiece and suspicious eyes beneath it. Open the gate, snorted Conan. You see its eye, don't you? Military discipline put his teeth on edge. The gate swung inward, and Conan and his companion passed through. Balthus noted that the gate was flanked by a tower on each side, the summits of which rose above the stockade. He saw loopholes for arrows. The guardsmen grunted as they saw the burden borne between the men. Their pikes jangled against each other as they thrust shut the gate, chin on shoulder, and Conan asked testily, Have you never seen a headless body before? The faces of the soldiers were pallid in the torchlight. That's Tiberius, 
blurted one. I recognize that fur-trimmed tunic. Valerius here owes me five lunars. I told him Tiberius had heard the loon call when he rode through the gate on his mule with his glassy stare. I wagered he'd come back without his head. Conan grunted enigmatically, motioned Balthus to ease the litter to the ground, and then strode off toward the governor's quarters with the Aquilonian at his heels. The tousle-headed youth stared about him eagerly and curiously, noting the rows of barracks along the walls, the stables, the tiny merchant stalls, the towering blockhouse, and the other buildings, with the open square in the middle where the soldiers drilled. And where now fires danced and men off duty lounged, these were now hurrying to join the morbid crowd gathered about the litter at the gate. The rangy figures of Aquilonian pikemen and forest runners mingled with the shorter, stockier forms of Bosonian archers. He was not greatly surprised that the governor received them himself. Autocratic society with its rigid caste laws lay east of the marshes. Valanus was still a young man, well-knit, with a finely chiseled countenance already carved into sober caste by toil and responsibility. You left the fort before daybreak, I was told, he said to Conan. I had begun to fear that the picks had caught you at last. When they smoke my head, the whole river will know, grunted Conan. They'll hear Pictish women wailing their dead as far as Velitrium. I was on a lone scout. I couldn't sleep. I kept hearing drums talking across the river. They talk each night, reminded the governor. His fine eyes shadowed as he stared closely at Conan. He had learned the unwisdom of discounting wild men's instincts. There was a difference last night, growled Conan. There have been ever since Zogasag got back across the river. We should either have given him presents and sent him home, or else hanged him, sighed the governor. You advise that, but... But it's hard for you, Hyborians, to learn the ways of the Outlands, said Conan. Well, it can't be helped now, but there'll be no peace on the border so long as Zogar lives and remembers the cell he sweated in. I was following a warrior who slipped over to put a few white notches on his bow. After I split his head, I fell in with this lad whose name is Bathus and who's come from the Tauran to help hold the frontier. Valenus approvingly eyed the young man's frank countenance and strongly knit frame. I am glad to welcome you, young sir. I wish more of your people would come. We need men used to forest life. Many of our soldiers and some of our settlers are from the eastern provinces and know nothing of woodcraft or even of agricultural life. Not many of that breed this side of Velitrium, grunted Conan. That town's full of them, though. But listen, Valanus, we found Tiberius dead on the trail. And in a few words he related the grisly affair. Valanus paled. I did not know he had left the fort. He must have been mad. He was, answered Conan like the other four. Each one, when his time came, went mad and rushed into the woods to meet his death, like a hare running down the throat of a python. Something called to them from the deeps of the forest, something the men call a loon, for lack of a better name, but only the doomed ones could hear it. Zogursag has made a magic that Aquilonian civilization can't overcome. To this thrust, Valanus made no reply. He wiped his brow with a shaky hand. Do the soldiers know of this? We left the body by the eastern gate. He should have concealed the fact, hidden the corpse somewhere in the woods. The soldiers are nervous enough already. They'd have found it out some way. If I had hidden the body, 
It would have been returned to the fort as the corpse of Seractus was, tied up outside the gate for the men to find in the morning. Bolanus shuddered. Turning, he walked to a casement and stared silently out over the river, black and shiny under the glint of the stars. Beyond the river, the jungle rose like an ebony wall. The distant screech of a panther broke the stillness. The night pressed in, blurring the sounds of the soldiers outside the blockhouse, dimming the fires. A wind whispered through the black branches, rippling the dusky water. On its wings came a low, rhythmic pulsing, sinister as the pad of a leopard's foot. After all, said Valanus, as if speaking his thoughts aloud, what do we know? What does anyone know? Of the things the jungle may hide, we have dim rumors of great swamps and rivers, and a forest that stretches on and on over everlasting plains and hills, to end at last on the shores of the western ocean. But what things lie between this river and that ocean we dare not even guess. No white man has ever plunged deep into that fastness and returned alive to tell us what be found. We are wise in our civilized knowledge, but our knowledge extends just so far. To the western bank of that ancient river, who knows what shapes earthly and unearthly may lurk beyond the dim circle of light our knowledge has cast? Who knows what gods are worshipped under the shadows of that heathen forest, or what devils crawl out of the black ooze of the swamps? Who can be sure that all the inhabitants of that black country are natural? Zogarsag a sage of the eastern cities would sneer at his primitive magic-making as the mummery of a fakir, yet he has driven mad and killed five men in a manner no man can explain. I wonder if he himself is wholly human. If I can get within axe-throwing distance of him, I'll settle that question, growled Conan, helping himself to the governor's wine and pushing a glass toward Balthus, who took it hesitatingly and with an uncertain glance toward Valanus. The governor turned toward Conan and stared at him thoughtfully. The soldiers who do not believe in ghosts or devils, he said, are almost in a panic of fear. You who believe in ghosts, ghouls, goblins, and all manner of uncanny things, do not seem to fear any of the things in which you believe. There's nothing in the universe cold steel won't cut, answered Conan. I threw my axe at the demon, and he took no hurt, but I might have missed in the dusk, or a branch deflected his flight. I'm not going out of my way looking for devils, but I wouldn't step out of my path to let one go by. Polanus lifted his head and met Conan's gaze squarely. Conan more depends on you than you realize. You know the weakness of this province, a slender wedge thrust into the untamed wilderness. You know that the lives of all the people west of the marshes depend on this fort. Were it to fall, red axes would be splintering the gates of Velitrium before a horseman could cross the marshes. His Majesty or His Majesty's advisers have ignored my plea that more troops be sent to hold the frontier. They know nothing of border conditions and are averse to expending any more money in this direction. The fate of the frontier depends upon the men who now hold it. You know that most of the army which conquered Kanijahara has been withdrawn. You know the force left is inadequate, especially since that devil Zogasag managed to poison our water supply, and forty men died in one day. Many of the others are sick, or have been bitten by serpents, or mauled by wild beasts, which seem to swarm in increasing numbers in the vicinity of the fort. The soldiers believe Zoga's boast that he could summon the forest beasts to slay his enemies. I have three hundred pikemen, four hundred Bosonian archers, 
and perhaps fifty men who, like yourself, are skilled in woodcraft. They are worth ten times their number of soldiers, but there are so few of them. Frankly, Conan, my situation is becoming precarious. The soldiers whisper of desertion. They are low-spirited, believing Zogasag has loosed devils on us. They fear the Black Plague with which he threatened us, the terrible Black Death of the Swamplands. When I see a sick soldier, I sweat with fear of seeing him burn black and shrivel and die before my eyes. Conan, if the plague is loosed upon us, the soldiers will desert in a body. The border will be left unguarded, and nothing will check the sweep of the dark-skinned hordes to the very gates of Velitrium, maybe beyond. If we cannot hold the fort, how can they hold the town? Conan... Zogasag must die. If we are to hold Kanajahara, you have penetrated the unknown deeper than any other man in the fort. You know where Guawa stands, and something of the forest trails across the river. Will you take a band of men tonight and endeavor to kill or capture him? Oh, I know it's mad. There isn't more than one chance in a thousand that any of you will come back alive. But if we don't get him, it's death for us all. You can take as many men as you wish. A dozen men are better for a job like that than a regiment, answered Conan. Five hundred men couldn't fight their way to Gwawela and back, but a dozen might slip in and out again. Let me pick my men. I don't want any soldiers. Let me go, eagerly exclaimed Balthus. I've hunted deer all my life on the Tehran. All right. Valanus will eat at the stall where the foresters gather, and I'll pick my men. We'll start within an hour, drop down the river in a boat to a point below the village and then steal upon it through the woods. If we live, we should be back by daybreak. Chapter 3 The river was a vague trace between walls of ebony. The paddles that propelled the longboat creeping along in the dead shadow of the eastern bank dipped softly into the water, making no more noise than the beak of a heron. The broad shoulders of the man in front of Balthus were a blue in the dense gloom. He knew that not even the keen eyes of the man who knelt in the prow would discern anything more than a few feet ahead of them. Conan was feeling his way by instinct and an intensive familiarity with the river. No one spoke. Balthus had had a good look at his companions in the fort before they slipped out of the stockade and down the bank into the waiting canoe. They were of a new breed growing up in the world on the raw edge of the frontier. Men whom grim necessity had taught woodcraft. Aquilonians of the western provinces to a man. They had many points in common. They dressed alike, in buckskin boots, leathern breeks and deerskin shirts, with broad girdles that held axes and short swords. And they were all gaunt and scarred and hard-eyed, sinewy and taciturn. They were wild men of a sort, yet there was still a wide gulf between them and the Sumerian, they were sons of civilization, reverted to a semi-barbarism. He was a barbarian of a thousand generations of barbarians. They had acquired stealth and craft, but he had been born to these things. He excelled them even in lithe economy of motion. They were wolves, but he was a tiger. Balthus admired them and their leader, and felt a pulse of pride that he was admitted into their company. He was proud that his paddle made no more noise than did theirs. In that respect, at least, he was their equal, though woodcraft learned in hunts on the Torren could never equal that ground into the souls of men on the savage border. Below the fort, the river made a wide bend. The lights of the outpost were quickly lost, but the canoe held on its way for nearly a mile. 
avoiding snags and floating logs with almost uncanny precision. Then a low grunt from their leader, and they swung its head about and glided toward the opposite shore, emerging from the black shadows of the brush that fringed the bank, and coming into the open of the midstream created a peculiar illusion of rash exposure. But the stars gave little light, and Balthus knew that unless one were watching for it, it would be all but impossible for the keenest eye to make out the shadowy shape of the canoe crossing the river. They swung in under the overhanging bushes of the western shore, and Balthus groped for and found a projecting root, which he grasped. No word was spoken. All instructions had been given before the scouting party left the fort. As silently as a great panther, Conan slid over the side and vanished in the bushes. Equally noiseless, nine men followed him. To Balthus, grasping the root with his paddle across his knee, it seemed incredible that ten men should thus fade into the tangled forest without a sound. He settled himself to wait. No word passed between him and the other man who had been left with him. Somewhere, a mile or so to the northwest, Zogasag's village stood girdled with thick woods. Balthus understood his orders. He and his companion were to wait for the return of the raiding party. If Conan and his men had not returned by the first tinge of dawn, they were to race back up the river to the fort and report that the forest had again taken its immemorial toll of the invading race. The silence was oppressive. No sound came from the black woods, invisible beyond the ebony masses that were the overhanging bushes. Balthus no longer heard the drums. They had been silent for hours. He kept blinking unconsciously trying to see through the deep gloom. The dank night smells of the river and the damp forest oppressed him. Somewhere nearby, there was a sound as if a big fish had flopped and splashed the water. Balthus thought it must have leapt so close to the canoe that it had struck the side, for a slight quiver vibrated the craft. The boat's stern began to swing, slightly away from the shore. The man behind him must have let go of the projection he was gripping. Balthus twisted his head to hiss a warning and could just make out the figure of his companion, a slightly blacker bulk in the blackness. The man did not reply. Wondering if he had fallen asleep, Balthus reached out and grasped his shoulder. To his amazement, the man crumpled under his touch and slumped down in the canoe. Twisting his body half about, Balthus groped for him, his heart shooting into his throat. His fumbling fingers slid over the man's throat. Only the youth's convulsive clenching of his jaws choked back the cry that rose to his lips. His finger encountered a gaping, oozing wound. His companion's throat had been cut from ear to ear. In that instant of horror and panic, Balthus started up, and then a muscular arm out of the darkness locked fiercely about his throat, strangling his yell. The canoe rocked wildly. Balthus's knife was in his hand though he did not remember jerking it out of his boot, and he stabbed fiercely and blindly. He felt the blade sink deep and a fiendish yell rang in his ear, a yell that was horribly answered. The darkness seemed to come to life about him. A bestial clamor rose on all sides, and other arms grappled him. Born under a mass of hurtling bodies, the canoe rolled sidewise, but before he went under with it, something cracked against Balthus's head and the night was briefly illuminated by a blinding burst of fire before it gave way to a blackness where not even stars showed. Chapter 4 Fires dazzled Balthus again as he slowly recovered his senses. He blinked, shook his head, their glare hurt his eyes. A confused medley of sound rose about him, growing more distinct as his senses cleared. 
He lifted his head and stared stupidly about him. Black figures hemmed him in, etched against crimson tongues of flame. Memory and understanding came in a rush. He was bound upright to a post in an open space, ringed by fierce and terrible figures. Beyond that ring, fires burned, tended by naked, dark-skinned women. Beyond the fires, he saw huts of mud and wattle, thatched with brush. Beyond the huts, there was a stockade with a broad gate. But he saw these things only incidentally. Even the cryptic dark women with their curious coiffures were noted by him only absently. His full attention was fixed in awful fascination on the men who stood glaring at him. Short men, broad-shouldered, deep-chested, lean-hipped. They were naked except for scanty loin-clouts. The firelight brought out the play of their swelling muscles in bold relief. Their dark faces were immobile, but their narrow eyes glittered with the fire, the burns in the eyes of a stalking tiger. Their tangled manes were bound back with bands of copper. Swords and axes were in their hands. Crude bandages banded the limbs of some, and smears of blood were dried on their dark skins. There had been fighting, recent and deadly. His eyes wavered away from the steady glare of his captors, and he repressed a cry of horror. A few feet away there rose a low, hideous pyramid. It was built of gory human heads. Dead eyes glared glassily up the black sky. Numbly he recognized the countenances which were turned toward him. They were the heads of the men who had followed Conan into the forest. He could not tell if the Cimmerian's head were among them. Only a few faces were visible to him. It looked to him as if there must be ten or eleven heads at least. A deadly sickness assailed him. He fought a desire to retch. Beyond the heads lay the bodies of half a dozen picks, and he was aware of a fierce exultation at the sight. The forest runners had taken toll at least. Twisting his head away from the ghastly spectacle, he became aware that another post stood near him, a stake painted black, as was was the one for which he was bound. A man sagged in his bonds there, naked except for his leathern breeks, whom Balthus recognized as one of Conan's woodsmen. Blood trickled from his mouth, oozed sluggishly from a gash in his side, lifting his head as he licked his livid lips. He muttered, making himself heard with difficulty above the fiendish clamor of the Pixed. So they got you, too. Sneaked up in the water and cut the other fellow's throat, groaned Balthus. We never heard them till they were on us. Mitra, how can anything move so silently? They're devils, mumbled the frontiersman. They must have been watching us from the time we left midstream. We walked into a trap. Arrows from all sides were ripping into us before we knew it. Most of us dropped at the first fire. Three or four broke through the bushes and came to hand grips, but there were too many. Conan might have gotten away. I haven't seen his head. Been better for you and me if they'd killed us outright. I can't blame Conan. Ordinarily, we'd have gotten to the village without being discovered. They don't keep spies on the riverbank as far down as we landed. We must have stumbled into a big party coming up the river from the south. Some devilman is up. Too many picks here. These aren't all Guawuli, men from the Wisdom tribes here and from up and down the river. Balthus stared at the ferocious shapes. Little as he knew of Pictish ways, he was aware that the number of men clustered about them was out of proportion to the size of the village. There were not enough huts to have accommodated them all. Then he noticed that there was a difference in the barbaric tribal designs painted on their faces and breasts. Some kind of devilment, muttered the forest runner. They might have gathered here to watch Zoga's magic-making. 
You'll make some rare magic with our carcasses. Well, a border man doesn't expect to die in bed, but I wish we'd gone out along with the rest. The wolfish howling of the picks rose in volume and exultation, and from a movement in their ranks, an eager surging and crowding, Balthus deduced that someone of importance was coming. Twisting his head about, he saw that the stakes were set before a long building, larger than the other huts, decorated by human skulls dangling from the eaves. Through the door of that structure now danced a fantastic figure. Zolgar, muttered the woodsman, his bloody countenance set in wolfish lines as he unconsciously strained at his cords. Balthus saw a lean figure of middle height, almost hidden in ostrich plumes, set on a harness of leather and copper. From amidst the plumes peered a hideous and malevolent face. The plumes puzzled Balthus. He knew their source lay half the width of a world to the south. They fluttered and rustled evilly as the shoreman leapt and cavorted. With fantastic bounds and prancings, he entered the ring and whirled before his bound and silent captives. With another man it would have seemed ridiculous, a foolish savage prancing meaninglessly in a whirl of feathers. But that ferocious face glaring out from the billowing mass gave the scene a grim significance. No man with a face like that could seem ridiculous or like anything except the devil he was. Suddenly he froze to statuesque stillness. The plumes rippled once and sank about him. The howling warriors fell silent. Zogasag stood erect and motionless, and he seemed to increase in height, to grow and expand. Balthus experienced the illusion that the Pict was towering above him, staring contemptuously down from a great height, though he knew the shoreman was not as tall as himself. He shook off the illusion with difficulty. The shoreman was talking now, a harsh, guttural intonation that yet carried the hiss of a cobra. He thrust his head on his long neck toward the wounded man on the stake. His eyes shone red as blood in the firelight. The frontiersman spat full in his face. With a fiendish howl, Zuga bounded convulsively into the air, and the warriors gave tongue to a yell that shuddered up to the stars. They rushed toward the man on the stake, but the shoreman beat them back. A snarled command sent men running to the gate. They held it open, turned and raced back to the circle. The ring of men split, divided with desperate haste to right and left. Balthus saw the women and naked children scurrying to the huts. They peeked out of doors and windows. A broad lane was left to the open gate, beyond which loomed the black forest, crowding sullenly in upon the clearing, unlighted by the fires. A tense silence reigned as Zoga Sag turned toward the forest, raised on his tiptoes and sent a weird, inhuman call shuddering out into the night. Somewhere, far out in the black forest, a deeper cry answered him. Balthus shuddered. From the timber of that cry he knew it never came from a human throat. He remembered what Valanus had said, that Zoga boasted that he could summon wild beasts to do his bidding. The woodsman was livid beneath his mask of blood. He licked his lips spasmodically. The village held its breath. Zogasag stood still as a statue, his plumes trembling faintly about him. But suddenly the gate was no longer empty. A shuddering gasp swept over the village, and men crowded hastily back, jamming one another between the huts. Balthus felt the short hair stir on his scalp. The creature that stood in the gate was like the embodiment of nightmare legend. Its color was of a curious pale quality, which made it seem ghostly and unreal in the dim light. 
but there was nothing unreal about the low-hung savage head and the great curved fangs that glistened in the firelight. On noiseless padded feet, it approached like a phantom out of the past. It was a survival of an older, grimmer age, the ogre of many an ancient legend, a saber-toothed tiger. No Hyborian hunter had looked upon one of those primordial brutes for centuries. Immemorial myths lent the creatures a supernatural quality, induced by their ghostly color and their fiendish ferocity. The beast that glided toward the men on the stakes was longer and heavier than a common striped tiger, almost as bulky as a bear. Its shoulders and forelegs were so massive and mightily muscled as to give it a curiously top-heavy look, though its hindquarters were more powerful than that of a lion. Its jaws were massive, but its head was brutishly shaped. Its brain capacity was small. It had room for no instincts except those of destruction. It was a freak of carnivorous development, evolution run amuck in a horror of fangs and talons. This was the monstrosity Zogasag had summoned out of the forest. Balthus no longer doubted the actuality of the shawmen's magic. Only the black arts could establish a domination over that tiny-brained, mighty-themed monster. Like a whisper at the back of his consciousness rose the vague memory of the name of an ancient god of darkness and primordial fear, to whom once both men and beasts bowed and whose children, men whispered, still lurked in dark corners of the world. New horror tinged the glare he fixed on Zogasag. The monster moved past the heap of bodies and the pile of gory heads without appearing to notice them. He was no scavenger. He hunted only the living, in a life dedicated solely to slaughter. An awful hunger burned greenly in the wide, unwinking eyes. The hunger not alone of belly emptiness, but the lust of death-dealing. His gaping jaws slavered. The shoreman stepped back, his hand waved toward the woodsman. The great cat sank into a crouch, and Balthus numbly remembered tales of its appalling ferocity, of how it would spring upon an elephant and drive its sword like fangs so deeply into the titan's skull that they could never be withdrawn, but would keep it nailed to its victim to die by starvation. The shawmen cried out shrilly, and with an ear-shattering roar the monster sprang. Balthus had never dreamed of such a spring. Such a hurtling of incarnated destruction, embodied in that giant bulk of iron thews and ripping talons. Full on the woodsman's breast it struck, and the stake splintered and snapped at the base, crashing to the earth under the impact. Then the saber-tooth was gliding toward the gate, half dragging, half carrying a hideous crimson hulk that only faintly resembled a man. Balthus glared almost paralyzed, his brain refusing to credit what his eyes had seen. In that leap, the great beast had not only broken off the stake, it had ripped the mangled body of its victim from the post to which it was bound. The huge talons in that instant of contact had disemboweled and partially dismembered the man, and the giant fangs had torn away the whole top of his head, shearing through the skull as easily as through flesh. Stout rawhide thongs had given way like paper. Where the thongs had held, flesh and bones had not. Balthus wretched suddenly. He had hunted bears and panthers, but he had never dreamed the beast lived which could make such a red ruin of a human frame in the flicker of an instant. The saber-tooth vanished through the gate, and a few moments later a deep roar sounded through the forest, receding in the distance, but the pick still shrank back against the huts, and the shawmen still stood facing the gate that was like a black opening to let in the night. 
Cold sweat burst suddenly out on Balthus's skin. What new horror would come through that gate to make carrion meat of his body? Sick panic assailed him, and he strained futilely at his thongs. The night pressed in very black and horrible outside the firelight. The fires themselves glowed lurid as the fires of hell. He felt the eyes of the picks upon him, hundreds of hungry, cruel eyes that reflected the lust of souls utterly without humanity, as he knew it. They no longer seemed men, they were devils of this black jungle, as inhuman as the creatures to which the fiend in the nodding plumes screamed through the darkness. Zogar sent another call shuddering through the night, and it was utterly unlike the first cry. There was a hideous sibilance in it. Balthus turned cold at the implication. If a serpent could hiss that loud, it would make just such a sound. This time there was no answer, only a period of breathless silence in which the pound of Balthus's heart strangled him, and then there sounded a swishing outside the gate, a dry rustling that sent chills down Balthus' spine. Again the firelit gate held a hideous occupant. Again Balthus recognized the monster from ancient legends. He saw and knew the ancient and evil serpent which swayed there, its wedge-shaped head huge as that of a horse, as high as a tall man's head, and its palely gleaming barrel rippling out behind it. A forked tongue darted in and out, and the firelight glittered on bared fangs. Balthus became incapable of emotion. The horror of his fate paralyzed him. That was the reptile that the ancients called Ghost Snake, the pale, abominable terror that of old glided into huts by night to devour whole families. Like the python, it crushed its victim, but unlike other constrictors, its fangs bore venom that carried madness and death. It too had long been considered extinct, but Valanus had spoken truly. No white man knew what shapes haunted the great forests beyond Black River. It came on silently, rippling over the ground, its hideous head on the same level, its neck curving back slightly for the stroke. Balthus gazed with a glazed, hypnotized stare into that loathsome gullet down which he would soon be engulfed, and he was aware of no sensation except a vague nausea. And then something that glinted in the firelight streaked from the shadows of the huts, and the great reptile whipped about and went into instant convulsions. As in a dream, Balthus saw a short throwing spear transfixing the mighty neck, just below the gaping jaws. The shaft protruded from one side, the steel head from the other. Knotting and looping hideously, the maddened reptile rolled into the circle of men who stove back from him. The spear had not severed its spine, but merely transfixed its great neck muscles. Its furiously lashing tail mowed down a dozen men, and its jaws snapped convulsively, splashing others with venom that burned like liquid fire. Howling, cursing, screaming, frantic, they scattered before it, knocking each other down in their flight, trampling the fallen, bursting through the huts. The giant snake rolled into a fire, scattering sparks and brands, and the pain lashed it to more frenzied efforts. A hut wall buckled under the ram-like impact of its flailing tail, disgorging howling people. Men stampeded through the fires, knocking the logs right and left. The flames sprang up, then sank. A reddish dim glow was all that lighted that nightmare scene, where the giant reptile whipped and rolled, and men clawed and shrieked in frantic flight. Balthus felt something jerk at his wrists, and then, miraculously, he was free. 
and a strong hand dragged him behind the post. Dazedly, he saw Conan felt the forest man's iron grip on his arm. There was blood on the Cimmerian's mail, dried blood on the sword in his right hand. He loomed dim and gigantic in the shadowy light. Come on, before they get over their panic. Balthus felt the haft of an axe shoved into his hand. Zogasag had disappeared. Conan dragged Balthus after him until the youth's numb brain awoke and his legs began to move of their own accord. Then Conan released him and ran into the building where skulls hung. Balthus followed him. He got a glimpse of a grim stone altar, faintly lighted by the glow outside. Five human heads grinned on that altar, and there was a grisly familiarity about the features of the freshest. It was the head of the merchant Tiberias. Behind the altar was an idol, dim, indistinct, bestial, yet vaguely manlike in outline. Then fresh horror choked Balthus as the shape heaved up suddenly with a rattle of chains, lifting long, misshapen arms in the gloom. Conan's sword flailed down, crunching through flesh and bone, and then the Sumerian was dragging Balthus around the altar, past a huddled, shaggy bulk on the floor, to a door at the back of the long hut. Through this they burst, out into the enclosure again, but a few yards beyond them loomed the stockade. It was dark behind the altar hut. The mad stampede of the picks had not carried them in that direction. At the wall, Conan halted, gripped Balthus, and heaved him at arm's length into the air, as he might have lifted a child. Balthus grasped the points of the upright logs set in the sun-dried mud and scrambled up on them, ignoring the havoc done his skin. He lowered a hand to the Cimmerian, when around a corner of the altar hut sprang a fleeing Pict. He halted short, glimpsing the man on the wall in the faint glow of the fires. Conan hurled his axe with deadly aim, but the warrior's mouth was already open for a yell of warning, and it rang loud above the din, cut short as he dropped with a shattered skull. Blinding terror had not submerged all ingrained instincts. As that wild yell rose above the clamor, there was an instant's lull, and then a hundred throats bade ferocious answer, and warriors came leaping to repel the attack, presaged by the warning. Conan leapt high, caught, not Balthus's hand, but his arm near the shoulder, and swung himself up. Balthus set his teeth against the strain, and then the Cimmerian was on the wall beside him, and the fugitives dropped down on the other side. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 